Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. Welcome to One Sweet Dream. I'm your host, Diane Erickson, and this week I'm running a three-part episode on McCartney in honor of his birthday. This first part started as an intro to the episode with Chris Salovich, which is the episode I'm rerunning, but it took on a life of its own and became a meditation on how McCartney is positioned, and it provides some reflections on the episode with Salovich. Part two is the Salovich interview. And part three is an all new episode with podcast researcher Hallie Ryan. It's a casual conversational episode where we discuss uh, Hallie's perceptions of Salovich's book and we dig into the themes found in it. So please watch out for that. Now, the episode that I am revisiting this week is actually one of the episodes that made me want to do this revisiting series because as I listened to it, I thought, I I really want people to hear this episode. Salovich just gets some of the fundamentals of the story right. And he has some great observations and insights into McCartney and actually into Lennon as well, as well as the Lennon-McCartney partnership. And he does something absolutely radical. He treats McCartney as an artist and as an artist of the highest order as one of the most significant artists of the 20th century, comparable to, say, Picasso. And he works from this baseline assumption, which McCartney clearly appreciated because he really opened up to Salovich in 1986, giving him one of his best interviews. Salvage said he wrote this book basically as a defense of McCartney because things had gotten so ridiculously out of whack in the wake of John Lennon's tragic murder when Lennon and McCartney were basically treated as a zero-sum game where praising one meant diminishing the other, which was a game McCartney obviously could not win. Salvage mentions in this interview that at the time that he wrote this book, everyone was sneering at McCartney and no one had a nice word to say about him. And McCartney reflects this. In fact, McCartney states to Salovich when they were talking in 1986 that he is getting sick of justifying living. Let's just take a pause there. He's sick of justifying living, which is a horrifying statement because not only did McCartney lose his musical soulmate, but with the death of Lennon, he was somehow found in the position of being 
guilty for being alive. Culturally, he was sort of positioned not necessarily as the villain, but as the opponent or the adversary. There was a tension there, an ongoing competition, where he was always compared unfavorably. But, of course, things are much different these days. You might be listening and thinking, what am I talking about? McCartney is a world-famous icon and a Beatles legend. But that's just it. He's treated like a legend because he's a Beatle, rather than because he's Paul McCartney, the artist. And that's crazy because his legacy and his catalog are insanely brilliant. You know? I'm trying to suggest that that massive positive energy around him is attributable to him as a result of his genius, his catalog, the way he has comported himself over 60 years. McCartney has had a huge life and he's done so much, so well. Everyone wanted to be him in the 60s. Not only was he brilliant and gorgeous and funny, He had the tightest, coolest group of friends in the world. And then he went lo-fi in the early 70s, eschewing the limelight and the press and fame to get earthy and wild with Linda, kids, horses, sheep, dogs, and music, defying and reinventing what it is to be a rock star. And then in the 80s, he gave an even sharper middle finger to the rock establishment by embracing daddom working on whatever the hell he wanted, animation, painting, collaborations. And then as an older man, did he settle down into the establishment playing the elderly statesman? Hell no. He released Fayou, declaring he wasn't over and embracing the super stud that he is and has always been. So, I mean, McCartney is pretty fucking incredible to investigate. He hasn't necessarily always been cool in his time, but my God, How cool is he as an artist? He deserves to be treated with the respect bestowed upon, say, Dylan, because I believe his career is as impressive. And you know who else thinks this? Dylan. And Lord knows McCartney can't mythologize himself. I mean, for God's sake, why is his dazzling post-Beatles career not revered? He's partly to blame. All he does is talk about the Beatles these days because he's trying to correct the story. And he can be his own worst enemy. Look at something like the Hulu McCartney 321 special with Rick Rubin. In the special, which was ostensibly about McCartney and his bass playing, McCartney ends up talking about Harrison and Lennon and George Martin and Starr most of the time, which is lovely and generous. But I've heard McCartney talk about them for 40 years. I'm ready to focus on him, specifically on his work, not on the stories that tend to not be on him, that kind of undermine his role in everything. Because that's what Paul the narrator does. He tells us stories through his eyes and his eyes are not on him. It tends to reflect how much he adored and appreciated other people, how he felt, his insecurities. And that's fine. That's useful and good information. But he is incredible, and he really can't tell that story for a number of reasons. Partly, it's pretty hard to romanticize yourself, and he's been taught not to do it. He can't see himself the way others do. Also, he's not particularly good at intellectualizing things because as an artist, 
He's not an intellectual. He's a doer. He does. So that's part of the issue. The other issue is he is sentimental and a class act. And he wants to honor Lenin and Harrison and George Martin and even Starr, who's still here, but not great at romanticizing what he does. So McCartney does it for them. But also, he can't really talk about himself because I think we've trained him not to focus on himself. We like when he talks about Lenin. And I think he was so traumatized by the breakup and his characterization as the villain and the egomaniac that he has overcorrected ever since. And of course, the fandom is ready to pounce if he ever says anything remotely defensive or worse, confidently. In the conversation with Salovich, he discussed the amount of criticism he had received and admits that for a long time, he took this criticism to heart. And so when considering how he presents himself or the types of stories that he tells, maybe they're not always his belief, but rather societal beliefs that he has internalized. He has also tried to protect his reputation, which he saw rapidly evaporating in the early 80s. Can you imagine? But eventually he gave up. Jan Wenner actually provides some insight into this. In his recent autobiography, he notes that about 10, 15 years ago, McCartney went to him and said he no longer wanted to be in war with the cult of Lenin, which, of course, Wenner and Rolling Stone were leading. I think there's no greater fan of John Lennon than Paul McCartney. But in some ways, positioning himself as fan skews the story a little bit because it shifts how we see the power dynamic. And it also omits the other part of the story, which is that McCartney's biggest fan was Lennon. The negative treatment didn't end with Salvage's book. It's gotten better, but it's still present. And that gets us to the reason I wanted to replay this episode, which is because the issue that Salvage wanted to address in 1986, McCartney's misrepresentation and the contemptuous attitude towards him, still in some ways persists today. Even in some of the major books coming out now, Paul is still treated with a sneer or a whiff of suspicion and dismissiveness that, in my opinion, is misplaced and probably traceable to the breakup period. Because I can tell you that attitude towards Paul was not present in the 60s. But it is present in articles that do things like talk about his genius as generic or his lyrics as lightweight or in the profiles that portray him without the respect of someone that is one of our greatest artists. Maybe most of the time we don't even see the ways that McCartney is casually dismissed or denigrated because it's been done for so long and he's given up challenging it. I'm challenging it. The general public adores McCartney and they want to celebrate him, but perhaps to do so properly, we need to disentangle some of the ideas that surround him or reframe how we talk about him. Just for fun, let's look at how he's treated in a New Yorker profile that came out in late 2021. In it, the author describes McCartney, and I quote, a showman who likes to please the average punter playing the hits and playing them precisely as recorded. He also states, and again, I quote, McCartney is a billionaire. A vast amount of that fortune can be ascribed to the songs that he wrote with Lennon before the first moon landing. Yet his audience usually exceed those of his most esteemed peers. Bob Dylan's catalog of the past 40 years is immensely richer than McCartney's. But Dylan generally plays 
mid-sized theaters like the Beacon in New York. McCartney sells at Dodger Stadium and the Tokyo Dome, end quote. The author seems to be implying that it's unfair that McCartney plays larger audiences than Dylan, who he claims has a catalog that is immensely richer than McCartney's. And that's not only obnoxiously assumptive, but it's a prime example of how McCartney's phenomenal post-Beatles catalog, glorious second act, goes uncelebrated. Because while he can prefer one catalog over the other, to dismiss McCartney's post-Beatles work with a single line is frankly offensive and dumb. But he also forgets McCartney actually wrote the songs that he is playing. Further, there is actually a reason that McCartney can play to larger audience because he is a brilliant live artist. The framing of Paulus Showman that wants to please the average punter has a whiff of that sneer I discussed. It speaks to potentially Paul pandering to the average rather than what is perhaps Paul's motivation, which is probably connection with the hearts of people. I don't know. Certainly there is a different way of framing what McCartney does because it creates a hell of a lot of love. Anyway, let's go on. The author touches upon Paul's book, The Lyrics. He says, and again, I quote, the resulting collection of essays is arranged alphabetically as if to defy any obvious arc to McCartney's evolution and to dissuade the reader from thinking that matters peaked in the summer of 1969 with the end. <sighs> again, the obvious arc to McCartney's evolution and to dissuade the reader from thinking that matters peaked. There again is the assumption that McCartney's work peaked and diminished after the end of the Beatles. These are his assumptions. He doesn't even try to look and see whether or not that can be challenged. It doesn't take into account that maybe McCartney did it this way, not defensively, but proudly as an argument for his post-Beatles work. As if to say, if we objectively look at all of his songs without bias, we could see the poetry in his lyrics remain throughout his career. And then he continues. Here he is talking about Lennon and McCartney's later collaborations. He says, they still got together to give each other's most recent songs a polish or to suggest a different line or a bridge, the middle eight. The results could be sublime, as when McCartney added, woke up, fell out of bed, dragged a comb across my head, to Lennon's A Day in the Life. The author, of course, is speaking of one of the greatest collaborations of Lennon-McCartney, where, according to McCartney, Lennon showed up with a few lines to the song and the original tune, which, of course, is foundational to the song, so credit to Lennon. But it was McCartney who helped him complete the lyrics, added the middle section, the line, I'd love to turn you on, the orchestral swell, which really makes it much more of a collaboration. In fact, Lennon didn't talk about Sgt. Pepper as being a later day collaboration. He talked about it as a peak for Lennon and McCartney as a partnership. So you see how in probably what would be considered a positive profile, how insidious and deeply rooted some of these ideas are. He sort of implies that McCartney is riding the coattails of the work he did with Lennon, profiting off the work that he did many years ago. And of course, the author gives no serious analysis to the superb music he continues to make. Somehow, this author has profiled an extraordinary man 
with extraordinary gifts and talents that literally changed the world and led the cultural scene for a decade and he can't have any fun with it? He calls him a showman and complains that he basically has not earned the right to play stadiums. He might not like the guy or his music, but you gotta respect what he did. And in my opinion, saying things like this, do not respect him. And this is only one of countless examples I could have pulled from any given year over the past 50 years. How casually McCartney and his work is belittled. How quickly his contributions are diminished. How often his artistry is all but ignored. I've watched countless interviews where reporters carelessly suggest that Lennon didn't love him, or they treat him like a secondary or a lesser partner, or worse, they position him as a lieutenant or a right-hand man. Just fuck off with that and get some imagination. And then they ask him to defend why his post-Beatles career was disappointing next to the Beatles. It's not his job to defend it. He tried. It's up to us to get a little perspective. And, you know, I don't know, maybe you're listening and think, but I agree with the author's assessment. And believe me, I've got a Beatles podcast and people say that to me all the time, especially people of my generation, Gen X. And that's fine, but I don't agree with his assessment. And I invite you to consider that maybe we think this because we've been told it so many times over the years. Remember, McCartney basically had to wave his white flag to Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone. So these kinds of ideas have been baked into Rolling Stone for over 50 years. You know, the idea that McCartney is the entertainer while Lennon and Harrison are the deep artistic and spiritual ones. Well, maybe McCartney and Starr are as well in their own way. Don't be fooled by McCartney's chipper exterior. He's still the game-changing creator of all these works that remain. Look how quickly we celebrate Brian Wilson or Bob Dylan or John Lennon or Elvis Costello as geniuses, which by the way, they deserve. And yet there seems to be a hesitation with McCartney or else, you know, they do things like modify it with labels like generic genius, which the New Yorker also did. Whatever the hell that means, I don't think it's good. There seems to be a reluctance to give him that title, which is absurd because he is not only the writer of some of the biggest, most beloved songs in the world, he is the most successful songwriter of all time. That is not the work of a craftsman. It is the work of a magician. And I think someday we'll see this. I'm sure many of you do now, especially people listening to my podcast, but I'm arguing that a corrective still needs to take place, starting with being a little bit more objective and neutral about his actions and perhaps removing some of the old judgment that surrounds him. Did McCartney really try to usurp Lennon as leader? Or was he simply working hard to keep things going? And actually, when we take a step back and look at the way the Beatles operated, was he not actually the co-leader the whole time as well? Forget the words. Let's look at the actions, the behavior. Was he an egomaniac or was he a savant artist on a hot streak? Is he a PR genius or simply one of the most famous people in the world whose casual and often unconsidered comments make headline news, often 
to his detriment in ways that bite him in the ass for years. Seems to me if he was such a PR master, we wouldn't be having this conversation. We only have to look at the brouhaha that occurred with the announcement that the Beatles would issue a final single with the help of AI. And lo and behold, McCartney was accused of employing his PR black magic to, well, it isn't exactly clear to me what evil ends they suspect him of, but they were suspicious. Which is ridiculous because the last thing the man needs is PR. Also, what is there to be suspicious of? No one could have been a better steward of the Beatles than McCartney. And yet, he remains in the stranglehold of judgment by the Beatles fandom. And by the way, I'm not saying that we need to kiss McCartney's ass. I mean, here I am defending him, and I routinely find his actions baffling and frustrating. But then I try and get perspective and remember what he's been through. I mean, when he does his tour of interviews, as he's doing now, He's wonderfully charming and everyone adores him and gets a high from even being around him. And he creates so much love. So I I don't want to suggest that that isn't wonderful. But part of what keeps him locked into this Beatles bubble image is the fact that he tends to repeat the same stories, which are mostly about the Beatles. They're generally charming but shallow. So I get why people have this impression of him. But we almost need to separate celebrity Paul from the artist Paul McCartney. I don't think that the guy telling the same stories is the one who shows up in the studio determined still at 80 to make new albums, still using his creative powers. The other one, after so many years of being criticized, I think he is just enjoying the love. And that's allowed. I don't need to think he's perfect or evolved or a better human. In fact, that might be boring. And I don't think McCartney is boring. In the article, McCartney himself says that he could be a total prick and Lennon could be a softie, which I'm sure is true. So I'm not lobbying for McCartney to be deified. What I would like is more sophisticated analysis that lets go of the bullshit and tries just a little bit harder to understand him, his psychology, his particular gifts, and perhaps to just be a little bit more objective and sympathetic to his humanity in the way that we are with John or George. I was very frustrated listening to him talk about John's life the other day because he talked about how tragic Lenin's life was with a mother who he was torn away from, with a father who disappeared, with a mother who later died. I mean, that is tragic. And McCartney talks about how his family was warmer. But you know what? He also had a mother who died when he was 14. And when we look at the lyrics, his trauma with that is so deeply embedded. He might want to tell the story about Lennon to explain him and talk about the differences between them. But we can look more objectively and say, no, Paul, you went through tragedy as well. Because McCartney has had an incredible life filled with huge success and glamour and fame and power. It's the stuff that epic stories are made of. But his life has also been filled with tragedy and challenge. And again, that's also what makes his life so iconic and incredible because he still shows up with positivity and grace. So we need to, to quote the song, cut him a little slack sometimes. 
and look at his life with more wonder and, as I said, allowing for his humanity. And there are people that are stepping up to do this, such as Philip McIntyre and Paul Thompson, who I had on my podcast. They wrote a brilliant book about McCartney's creative practice. But still, more of this analysis needs to be done. And, you know, it's kind of a tough job because McCartney, in some ways, eludes mythologizing. Maybe he almost unconsciously resists it. He's talked about how he's had to resist seeing himself as an icon. And perhaps this resistance has been conveyed to us. He's also way smarter and way more complicated than he's given credit for. Many a biographer has thrown up their hands trying to figure him out. In fact, Hunter Davies talked about what a complicated man McCartney is. And in fact, he said the same about George Harrison. He said, how could we in the 60s have taken Paul for a simple, lovable soul? Paul is much harder to explain and understand than John. And he said the same again for George. John was so much more upfront, quick to reveal himself and his opinions. Paul had so many layers. And that he does. He's definitely a challenge to figure out. McCartney has actually said he doesn't want to be treated like a living legend, which I can understand. I can imagine how dull and limiting that would be and kind of scary. I mean, how do you connect with people when they treat you like you're different? But I also believe he wants his story to be understood. He wants to be understood and he wants his work to be acknowledged and respected. It's the reason he puts out the lyrics. It's the reason he worries about the order of Lennon and McCartney. It's the reason he repeats that damn breakup story every time he talks to somebody. It's because he wants his story to be told properly and he's trying to correct stories. But maybe we should take over for him. Maybe it's our turn. You'll never hear Paul talk about how good he is on bass. That was kind of the problem with the Rick Rubin special. But I'd love to hear Rick Rubin talk about it. In fact, this is what Rick Rubin said. You think of him as Beatle Paul, yet in my opinion, he's the best of all bass players. He's number one. So, you know, maybe it takes the objectivity of somebody else to talk about McCartney. And again, here is Rick Rubin on the Beatles. For me, the Beatles are proof of the existence of God, so good and so far beyond everyone else, that it's not them. If you listen to Rubin, he talks a lot about creativity and, you know, spirit. And so he's probably suggesting that spirit is moving through them. And probably McCartney would agree that it wasn't them, that it was something higher. Nevertheless, it is also partly attributable to McCartney. And so I think his work should be marveled at and examined. Let's figure out what makes him him which is what Salovich set out to do, understand him, reject the common characterizations and present a more clear-eyed view of McCartney based on research. And his research is pretty great. He talked to a lot of people who knew him well in the 80s. I always found Salovich's take persuasive and empathetic, which is why I wanted to talk to him. We are rather unabashedly positive about McCartney because we're both interested in a corrective, but you know what? I'm good with that. There's room for this. He took a pounding for a long time. And as I said, there's bullshit that needs to be dismantled. So it's okay just to talk about his strengths, especially on his birthday. Anyway, before we jump into the episode, I have a few reflections that I wanted to um, share with you. These are things that occurred to me as I listened. Take one. Okay. 
First of all, I loved the term that Salvage used when talking about Lennon-McCartney's relationship and partnership. He uses the term, the poetry of their existence. And I think that's such a lovely and perfect term that applies to so much about them. There seems to be a mysticism about their connection, their partnership. Even Lennon and McCartney talk about their partnership and relationship in these ways, as if it were written in the stars. Paul McCartney announced yesterday that the Beatles will release a last single, and I believe it's a song called Now and Then. As I tweeted, it is deeply connected to McCartney in almost a spiritual way. And there are other ways that the song is connected to him. I believe it is, as Salovich said, simply part of the poetry of their existence. I also love the fact that Salovich attributes the masculine and feminine to both Lennon and McCartney. He sees McCartney as maternal and paternal to Lennon, almost more the paternal one, and Lennon as both to McCartney, but in some ways as more maternal to McCartney, which is important because McCartney needed nurturing and Lennon needed direction. And so while they both provided both to each other, their strengths complemented each other in many, many ways. He also talks about masculine and feminine energy, which of course is not about the masculine and feminine. We all have both, but he flips it a little bit again, attributing the more nurturing, fluid, free-flowing feminine energy to Lennon and attributing more of the doing, achieving masculine energy to McCartney, which I think is correct. But of course, this challenges the dominant idea that John was the tough, truth-talking one and McCartney was the soft, sentimental, nurturing one. Of course, they could both be both. And they were to each other. And that's important to acknowledge. And I think that's one of the reasons McCartney's always banging on about how soft and gentle Lennon was. That is the guy that he knew. That's the guy that we see, actually, when we see McCartney's photos in Eyes of the Storm. That's the guy that McCartney saw for years and years, the soft, gentle, vulnerable Lennon. That's why, as he tells Salovich, he was hesitant to really go after Lennon in the 70s because he says that was his buddy and he didn't want to hurt him. That needs to be taken into account when talking about Lennon and McCartney is that McCartney always has a soft spot for Lennon, understanding how vulnerable he is. And in some ways, Lennon maybe didn't have that for McCartney because he thought McCartney was strong. Of course, he was also vulnerable, but maybe Lennon didn't see enough of that. Maybe McCartney did not share enough of that, but it was there. I also love the way that he framed the relationship as an unconscious love affair. I think that's a very good characterization of the relationship, which of course was part creative and human love affair. Lennon was always talking about their partnership as a marriage. He talks about McCartney so differently than he talks about anyone else. Lennon's anger with McCartney all reflect the depth of his feeling for him. And we've got to just get with that fact. And so I loved Salovich's term, an unconscious love affair. I think it was unconscious, but also conscious, which is perhaps why they were never quite able to pin the relationship down. It remained elusive and there was always a longing for it. But that's part of what makes it so 
mystical and bewitching for many of us who just love the Beatles and understand that this love affair between Lennon and McCartney is kind of central to it. Something else that I loved was something that Salovich said that I didn't really pay attention to at first, and that is the issue of pressure, the amount of pressure and stress they were under. When he said this, I kind of disregarded it because I thought, oh yeah, everybody talks about the pressure they were under. And, you know, I was focused on highlighting the relationship issues between Lennon and McCartney, which of course I still think are huge and which Salovich also does. But the more I thought about it, the more the issue of pressure really is an important factor to take into consideration because pressure plays into the way all the Beatles were behaving. Not only did the Beatles occupy this top position for years in a position that, as Cleve says, was only occupied by royalty, but Lennon and McCartney were the primary drivers of the hits that kept them there. So they probably felt the stress most keenly. They probably felt most responsible to keep them there. And it was relentless. The problem with being the top is there's always the fear of falling. And I'm not suggesting that Harrison and Starr didn't contribute or weren't a big part of that as well. It's just that I don't think Starr cared as much. And Harrison might have had less attachment to the position of number one. Whereas I think McCartney and Lennon had attachment to that and felt the responsibility to keep them there. And so I think this ongoing pressure and stress to deliver would have impacted their psyches and nervous systems. And in some ways, that probably pushed them together because they were in this together to keep them there. It bonded them. But in some ways, it also, I think, pulled them apart because they had the additional pressure of performing for each other. I think they would have felt tremendous pressure to keep delivering, to not disappoint each other. But also, there was a sense of competition and insecurity about constantly being measured to each other. The minute each started getting individual acknowledgement, that probably led to the insecurity, you know, to measure up to each other, both in the eyes of each other, but also in the eyes of the world. And it is actually something that Lennon talked about, actually much more than McCartney. Maybe he felt it more keenly. The competition between Lennon and McCartney, I suspect Lennon felt that more keenly, but I think McCartney felt the relentless pressure to keep them on top more than Lennon did. And so it contributed to the breakdown that they both had when the Beatles broke up. It's important to consider that the life of famous bands or bands as a whole is incredibly stressful and relentless. It's something that Lennon talked about, especially interestingly, when he was trying to figure out how they broke up, how they had ended in divorce, when he seems to be suggesting they didn't really want it to happen, that it was a mistake. He basically says this, that it's something that none of them believed they could get to. And in some ways that it was the enormous pressure that caused them to turn inwards and hurt the people that they loved the most, which was each other. Um, One of the things that made me laugh uh, that I paid attention to was McCartney talking about Lennon and Ono's various beliefs. And he talks about how uh, he has to be careful not to believe too much in numerology and all those kinds of things because he's crazy enough as it is. I think this is an important idea to be aware of. McCartney himself says he's crazy enough as it is. You don't become the artist without having a crazy 
imagination, and inner life. And so I think we should take that idea seriously. McCartney may not be as sane as we think. When he tells his simplistic stories, these are ones that he has basically learned because he probably wants to stop himself from going down rabbit holes that will create problems for him when he goes off message. So we have to realize that you know, Brian Wilson might seem a little bit crazy. McCartney is probably too. He's just better at containing it externally. Another thing that was interesting was that McCartney's tone in the 1986 interview with Salovich uh, was quite different. He's acting almost as if Lennon was there. You know, he wasn't deeply romantic or grieving. It was like he'd had some space and he was battling with a number of issues. And he was emotional and confused. He's still processing Lennon's actions from the 70s. Poor Paul was left in the unenviable position of having to eulogize a man he loved, but was also deeply conflicted about, and that he remains deeply conflicted about to this day. I think he still struggles with this issue. He makes this statement in the book, The Lyrics. He's still confused and trying to figure out why John got so angry with him in the 70s, ignoring some of the very evident clues. And I think the problem is McCartney hasn't been allowed to be angry publicly. You know, he, he immediately had to turn around and eulogize him. And when he expressed some of that anger, he got massive backlash. So he had to keep it in. And I think that's why all kinds of craziness and mixed messages came out from him for so long. He wasn't allowed to be angry at the way he was treated by the press, by the way that he was treated by Lenin, by what had happened to their relationship. And although I do think they had periods of warmth in the 70s, and I do believe that they were working their way back to each other, they never got to completely resolve what had happened. And he was probably angry about that. And most importantly, he must have been very angry to have been left on his own by Lennon, you know, carrying the weight on his own. They were supposed to have been in this together. And so McCartney was just left having to piece it all together on his own. It's as if in 1986, and frankly today, he's searching for to find an explanation of why if John wanted to leave and he let him, why John was so angry with him. And he kind of misses the massive clues that John left behind. McCartney even talks about finding his wedding photo with Linda with the word funeral written over it, which was part of the puzzle from McCartney, indicating how emotional and irrational Lennon was in 1970. And yet he can't quite put it together that maybe Lennon was just sad that they were moving apart and didn't really want to. But again, that's an external point of view. And so I think all of this is worth paying attention to. So I would encourage people to listen deeply to what McCartney says in this. Yes, he's defensive and emotional, but he's saying the things that we never get to hear because this was not for public consumption. This is what he was telling Salovich for this interview. It was on the record, so I don't think he's being um, duplicitous here. 
but he was not expecting this interview to be heard publicly. And it's a good thing we can because he's getting real. This is probably what McCartney sounds like when he's not trying to play nice in public. And I like it better personally. Now, just a heads up that um, this episode that I'm presenting is actually the result of two interviews with Salovich. He was really generous with his time. The first time we talked more about the book, the second time more about this interview, and both were very long interviews, so I merged them. And then I also incorporated the McCartney interview so that it could be running concurrently with things that we were talking about. And for some reason, combining and merging these three audios somehow affected the overall audio and made part of it a little bit tinny or echoey. What I'm thinking I might do is actually upload the two original interviews, which do sound better, to Patreon. So if you're interested in checking those out, I'll put those out in the next couple of weeks. Um, If you're interested in joining Patreon, it's patreon.com forward slash one sweet dream. I'd love to have you there and hugely appreciate support for the podcast. So that is what uh, part two will be which is the conversation with Salovich. And part three, as I mentioned, will be a conversation with Once We Dream researcher, Hallie Ryan. Hallie Ryan has done an inordinate amount of research and has read a million Beatles books, but strangely, she had never read Salovich's book, probably because it's out of print right now. So in honor of this interview and his upcoming birthday, I requested that she read this book. I thought it would be fun for us to talk about, which it absolutely was. And so the third part of this episode is just our conversation, which is loose and casual, about the themes in this book, about, you know, the corrections to his image. I mean, we go deep about McCartney, about Lennon McCartney, probably way too deep, but that's kind of the point of podcasts, no? Uh, If not, I'm kind of in trouble. Thanks for listening. Please look out for the episode tomorrow with Salovich and the episode the following day with researcher Hallie Ryan. And happy birthday to Paul McCartney. Here's wishing you a very, very happy birthday and many, many more. Bye for now. W.